Hello, everyone, and welcome to ZFZ's podcast series on how to deal with an economic crisis for international businesses. We will be discussing different legal topics and insights relevant to businesses and hope to provide you with some novel perspectives and strategies to deal with the crisis. Stay tuned. Well, hello. Um, welcome to Floyd Zadkovich's video series. Um, my name is Luke Zadkovich. I'm one of the partners at the firm, and I'm delighted today to have with us Ashwin Shankar at uh, George Rebello Law Firm, a law firm of uh, a very rich history. Um, and uh, I've known Ashwin for many years now from the industry. So welcome, Ashwin. Thank you very much for having me over, Luke. It's, uh, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm very interested for our discussion today and to talk about some of the issues that um, you are facing in this uh, very difficult time with uh, COVID-19 um, and to, to get into how uh, this, um, this issue is affecting uh, things in um, India as well as some of the legal issues uh, related uh, to it. Um, so, so, so thanks again for your time. Um, and just to, to open up, if you could uh, give a little explanation about your firm and yourself, I, I think uh, that, that would be quite useful. Yeah, so we're a small boutique shipping firm. We've been around for about 30 years now. Uh, we have about four partners and about six associate lawyers plus support and admin staff. So about 15 people all put together. Uh, usual shipping, joy security, ship arrests across India, enforcement of foreign awards, uh, injunctions of bank guarantees. Uh, that's our shipping vertical. Also, there's a bit of offshore work uh, and a bit of commercial, general commercial work as well. So it's a fairly fast-growing, youngish law firm, a bit like uh, yours as well. Um, and we hope to remain this size and continue to be profitable. And how are you finding operationally uh, dealing with um, this issue? I take it you're all working from home and, and all of that? It's actually impacted us less than we were expecting. A lot of what we're doing, we are able to do from home. Um, we've got a lot more problems largely because of the damage-related issues that have been coming up uh, over the past one month, the uncertainty in the business. So we've tackled as much as we can over the phone and email, but we have also had to do quite a few ship arrests, ongoing cargo attachment, cargo arrests. So that's been keeping us uh, busy, yes, all of us. We've also had a few international arbitrations which we've been working with. We've done submissions online, video. It's worked fine and profitably. And, and how are you uh, getting the arrests and the attachments? Is that all through virtual um, applications or...? Absolutely. So we did have initially some teething problems because uh, courts were working only once in every three, four days. Uh, that's, that's a bare minimum, maybe only two judges sitting out of about 30, 40. It's still going on at, at that uh, reduced strength, only for extremely urgent matters. Uh, apart from just getting a hearing, we other had, otherwise had also procedural difficulties to get over. Uh, like, for example, documents need to be notarized. Uh, but we weren't able to get notaries around to get them signed. So some courts have been lenient and said, you don't need to notarize it. It's sufficient right. if the client to sign on those documents, PDF it and send it to us. But those are exceptions. Uh, also, a lot of courts have just extended deadlines on things to be done. Like, for example, a limitation time bar has been pushed ahead. 
uh, all other procedural directions have been automatically default pushed ahead in a, in a single blanket order passed by the Supreme Court. Uh, all injunction orders that were passed that were due to lapse in these months of uh, March, April, May have also been accordingly extended. Uh, we, I'm, I'm sure we will face a flood of those the day the courts open and all those orders expire. Uh, there will be a lot of people then running back to court asking for a hearing or for an extension of those respective orders. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear how different jurisdictions are, are dealing with those issues. In the US, for example, um, there was just a, a blanket extension of time-related uh, procedures. All orders had an additional month added onto them or more. Uh, whereas in, in England, we're not seeing that on a, a kind of uniform blanket basis, but more on a case-by-case um, -case basis. And if you need more time, then uh, the courts are very lenient in, in granting that. Um, I've not seen a moratorium on the time bars. Uh, they are being freely, uh, um, consensually extended. Um, but there's not a, you know, just an automatic extension. And so far as the courts um, in... Um, both the US and England, which is the, the jurisdictions where, where our firm practices, uh, it's all um, continuing, um, but on a virtual basis. In, in much way. And, and indeed, filing now, uh, I'm not sure about in India, uh, I'd be interested in, in, in what happens there, but filing these days in both the US and England is all online. So we can, we can run a lot of the litigation um, completely virtually and, and from from afar, so to speak, the only touch point has been for hearings. You know, when you actually need to appear in court and and, and argue. And what level of uh, hearings are you seeing happening in the uh, English High Courts or in the United States Supreme Courts? Yeah, uh, in England, hearings have been continuing, um, perhaps not at the same frequency. Uh, there, and that's largely because a lot of adjournments have been sought for various reasons and those hearings have been pushed off. But for those cases where um, the parties are ready to go and there's no um, uh, COVID-19 related reason for extending time, then those are proceeding. I've got a trial starting on Monday, for example, um, uh, for a, a fraud related claim. Um, and two weeks later, I've got another trial. So those are happening virtually. Um, uh, and um, I haven't yet had uh, a full hearing. I've had interlocutory hearings uh, virtually. So it's going to be, um, yeah, it's going to be an experience to have a, a full trial uh, from the home office. And are the courts taking up only high priority matters or are they also doing routine matters? No, they're, they're also doing routine matters. Uh, um, I'm speculating somewhat, but I, I suspect part of that is if the technology works, if the parties can deal with um, the, the issues in play, there are no actual practical reasons why it can't proceed, then it's better to continue to move the court docket along. Otherwise, as you say, you're going to end up with a backlog um, when things start opening up again. And stepping back for a moment, looking at um, uh, not just our industry, but uh, industries more uh, generally, this is without doubt, this pandemic is um, in my lifetime, one of the worst things that as a global society we've had to deal with. Um, 
and the the devastating human and health effects are just mind-boggling frankly and, and devastating um but in amongst all of that um th this has led to quite a, an increased uptake in using virtual means for business where we can um and i i do wonder whether um uh, this period in a way um has been an opportunity for the courts to use some of the virtual software and see how it goes. Um, and I would not be surprised at all if um, some of the methods that are being used now uh, remain in place. Um, not, not, not everything, we're not gonna always have trials over, over um, Zoom or Skype, but um, more interlocutory hearings, I can see a, a tendency towards those um, th those perhaps being undertaken virtually, particularly in the international setting, Ashwin, where you have international clients who might want to attend, but there's a, a high cost in having them uh, come from abroad. Well, what about in India? Um, do, was there much use of telephonic conferences or, or virtual uh, conferences before? Um, yes, we had, we had zero. Hmm. Uh, excepting in the case of uh, evidence which was being recorded sometimes for a witness which was overseas but otherwise it was almost never being used uh, there were certainly no hearings ever happening there has been talk as well as a judgment about the need to live stream the hearings so the hearings would happen in the courtroom but they would be broadcast on on a live stream uh, i don't think that was ever actually it was recently done so i don't think the technology was has been yet up and running to be right. to that uh, it was towards the interest, interest more of transparency of court rather than uh, continuity, which that time was not a problem. Uh, now they're doing it on either Zoom or on WebEx or this, this Blue Jeans. Different courts are using different softwares for this, uh, but only bare essential urgent matters are happening. Uh, has the United States or the English bar or amongst users, has there been any arguments against the adaptation of this on a more long term? permanent basis? I think it's too early to say on that. Um, there has certainly not been any pushback that I've seen in using um, virtual means during this period. I think actually um, uh, the parties generally speaking have um, embraced the technology uh, and it will be interesting to see after the, the shutdown, the lockdown um, uh, ends, hopefully <laughs> when that ends, um, whether some of this, this way of doing um, the court's business continues or not. Um, I suspect that the, um, the, the, the bars will be interested in keeping some of it, um, but not, not too much. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's how, how I see things. Um, in India, uh, how are you seeing the, this pandemic affect uh, trade and um, shipping and, and the industry? So um, there is a genuine interruption because truck transport carrying raw materials is being affected. Uh, I'll focus more on the shipping and on the commodities side rather than general life. Uh, some people, uh, so, so the cargo discharge and loading rates have dropped a lot because the out clearance out of ports has been affected, resulting in ships having to wait. 
uh, also the number of gangs for stevedores, number of barges that are available have also dropped, resulting in a slowdown in discharge rate, but not a complete shutdown, which is adding to the ambiguity of uh, whether or not it amounts to a force major. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people are using this as an excuse not to pay but what for payments that normally would fall due, like either charter hire or freight or demerage. Uh, and we don't know whether it's genuine or not, but they all claim financial difficulty, which is all a onward result of this. So payment defaults, uh, claims arising out of payment defaults, not just interest, but people may, let's say, stop performing, stop discharging, withholdings, exercise of liens. So those are one of the triggers of legal issues. And of course, slow discharge due to non-availability of full facilities, again, resulting in uh, whether or not it's a force major interruption to a late time. Yeah. And is there a, is there a standalone concept of force majeure under Indian law uh, as there is in civil countries or it, presumably it follows the, the common law of, of England where it, it requires contractual uh, language setting out the force majeure? You're right. It is uh, similar to England. We follow the force major clause and it must be clearly and specifically worded. Uh, and a lot of that has been subject matter of debate here. Yeah, because it's, it, look, we've been, I'm sure as you and, and most uh, uh, maritime lawyers out there have been dealing force majeure since this started. And um, there, are a lot, there are a lot of misconceptions around what a force majeure clause does. Um, and some of that is to do with the the origin of the the concept and that it's um, interpreted differently in different parts of the world. Uh, some countries actually have it as a principle of law, like you know, like the, the frustration in English law, which is a, a common law principle and it's not needed to be stated in the contract. Uh, whereas if you're dealing with a common law uh, contract, like English and as I understand Indian then um, you need the contractual language in it uh, to be able to rely on force majeure. And you, the starting point in those cases is always the actual clause. What does the clause say? What events are covered by the clause? Um, and uh, importantly, what is the effect of that? What, what, is, there, is it a suspension of uh, specific obligations? Is it some, does it give you termination rights after a period of time? Um, and one element which is very common in uh, force majeure clauses is this concept of um, foreseeability and whether the circumstance is unforeseen. So if you have contracts that are being entered into after um, COVID-19 had spread uh, around the world, then if it's still got that old language that we've, we've seen many clauses that says an unforeseeable event, et cetera, et cetera, and then defines the event, you might not be able to fall within the force majeure clause because the parties could have foreseen it at the time of contracting. Uh, and that's just one issue. <laughs> there's there's an array of um, arguments. And what are some of the, the arguments you've been seeing around? No, so precisely exactly as you correctly list out. But some we've seen uh, uh, also where let's say COVID has happened, but one would not know whether there was going to be a, one would not know whether it be a stevedore slowdown, for example. Mm -hmm. So the contract may have been entered into, let's say post, for example, March. Uh, the ports have not, ports were still working fine, but by the time the vessel comes down, there are other slowdowns which one may not have envisaged, uh, though the contracts were entered into after COVID. So you think that there'll be a lockdown, but you 
don't think that, for example, stevedores would not be available or, or, or charter hire payments would not come on time. So it's the same point, but it gets more complicated when you run individual examples. Uh, we've got actually a lot of uh, problems. Another issue which we face fairly often is, uh, let's, I, I, I appear most for bulk cargo operators. So I, I, I use that as the example for, for most of what we do. Uh, so let's say most commonly, demerage is payable X number of days after completion of discharge of the cargo. Uh, and this is cargo coming into India, for example. Yes. At every point of time, say damage is payable seven days after completion of discharge. During the discharge, the operator doesn't know whether or not he will get his damage. The receiver slash charterer does not uh, raise force major at that time because he's not obliged to under the contract uh, mention that he's going to be using a defense of force major. Uh, or maybe he does as well, uh, but there's also whether the lien can or cannot be enforced uh, mm-hmm. because of this ambiguity. So one way we often have recommended to our operator clients is when you can't exercise the lien because the demerit, either because the demerit has not yet fallen due mm-hmm. or because the owner of the cargo is somebody who's different from your debtor charterer, uh, do not issue delivery orders against an LOI insist on production of the original bill of lading. Uh, What that does is uh, because original bills of lading are not reaching discharge ports due to courier shutdowns, Mm. uh, it effectively, you know that you will not get the OBL and you can indirectly exercise a lien which you would not have otherwise been entitled to exercise under the contract. And that gets you the upper hand bargaining position to be able to recover the damage which is in dispute. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. It's, I like your thinking there. One, um, one point of caution on that is, of course, if the charter party itself already has the indemnity language in it. And we've, we've seen that, if I look, think back over the last 10 years, um, it, was, it was rare to see the LOI indemnity language actually sitting in the charter party itself. But as the years have gone on, um, <laughs> the there's the language saying that um, we'll deliver without presentation of bills against the club um, club wording, but now we're seeing more and more some of the actual language, the operative language that you would see in the LOI itself sit within the charter party, and it's almost like agreeing to the LOI up front. So assuming that um, that is not in the charter party, then I think that's that's a great idea. Um, so we had this in two of our cases, and uh, one of them, the we got the LOI from the charterer, but the charterer then, in the week when he issued the LOI, went into financial distress. There were insolvency proceedings filed against them. And on that basis, we've attempted, we've recommended to clients that you attempt to not act on the basis of his LOI because it looks highly unlikely that you will ever be able to collect under the indemnity for the value of the cargo should there be a misdelivery. And we tried to use that as a justification to bypass this clause. Uh, another one which we did is we asked ourselves as to what would be the damages payable if we were in breach of this obligation to discharge against an LOI. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we weren't able to put a number to it. And therefore we, we weighed the risks and we thought it more practical to to put pressure on this way to collect our demerage because it was highly unlikely that there would be a, that the charter would be able to quantify what his losses are as opposed to the receiver's losses are 
as a result of our insisting on a, a bill of leading and not a letter of indemnity. Yeah, that's that's interesting because the I, I see the issue as against the charter, but when it's the receiver mm. who's seeking to leverage under the bill, that's its contract um, against the operator owner, the uh, the obligation to discharge. I'm I see your point that it, it may not necessarily follow that the receiver can rely upon the indemnity provision as between charter and owner to insist upon delivery without bills of lading. Yeah, I see that argument. And the quantification of the claim. Yeah. It's yeah. difficult for them to put a number to it. So There's also, it strikes me with that type of clause that depending on how the, the indemnity provision I'm talking about in a charter party, depending on how it's worded, I've, I've wondered previously, not in this context, whether some of them are actually worded as an, an agreement to agree. Um, and that some are definitely agreed as an indemnity at that point in time. But some of them talk about, um, you know, owners will do this if a club LAU is issued. And it's there's often a debate about exactly what goes in the final LOU and what's accepted. Um, is that a bank countersigned LOU, which is which is club recommended, or is it not, which is usually the case? So if the language is saying you you know we will um, deliver against a club LOU, uh, owners arguably could say well fine, but it has to be a club countersigned by a bank LO. Um, LOI, sorry, not LOI. Um, and I, I, I think there's an argument in there. I, I do. Um, fascinating. Yeah. These these fees are essentially to force to get a lien and then to extract uh, damage where you later on think that you've given up the cargo and you'll be faced with the defense of a force major struggling, putting you in a difficulty to collect in a whole long drawn arbitration and then an execution. So it's a shortcut pressure tactic. Yeah, exactly. And that's really the, um, that's the objective uh, at the moment is, is to maintain some form of pressure, some form of leverage um, so as to protect your position, uh, particularly if you sense that your charters are not going to be in a, for an operator anyway, are not going to be in a position to, um, to pay on time. There are often levers that you can pull uh, to, to strengthen your hand, and so are you. Are you seeing um, an uptick in attachments or other type of um, getting, asset seizures? We get doing a lot of ship arrest work now. Mm -hmm. You routine bunker supply most commonly, but also a lot of atta attachment seizures for this unpaid damage for exactly the same issue. So, where in fact, I, I was on a call just now uh, on this as well as yesterday, and all of these are fairly complicated because you have multiple parties and they have different stages of delivery. Sometimes uh, they want to attach the cargo after having issued delivery orders, mm -hmm. uh, which means that they've already parted with possession uh, notionally. Uh, so, there's, 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 it gets more complicated with that. Sometimes the receiver is different from the charter, so you have a innocent bill of reading holder claiming uh, entitlement to delivery of the cargo. Right. I'm, I'm sure you're facing a lot of this kind of inquiries as well. Yeah. Yeah. We're seeing it. We've definitely seen an uptick in that, um, particularly on the U S side. So uh, as you know, we advise on both U S and English law 
um, when it comes to asset attachments and um, uh, vessel arrests. We, we tend to see more on the US side of things because that's where uh, a lot of companies have assets, whether they're passing through or um, they ha have it located in, in the US. So we are seeing um, an increase in inquiries about attachments. Uh, rule B um, and Rule C. So Rule B being um, uh, both maritime uh, type attachments, but Rule B being for um, the going after the property of a defendant that's not found uh, within that state, within the jurisdiction, uh, in support of a maritime claim, and Rule C being the vessel arrests. Uh, and uh, between the United States and the UK, are there any striking differences between how force major are treated? Um, not really. Uh, th there are differences on what elements of a force majeure may mean. So, you know, the, the definition of a labor strike may be slightly different in the US or in, in England, which is a product, as you know, of the common law looking at certain elements slightly differently. But going back to first principles, they, they both rest on the premise that um, for there to be a force majeure, the parties need to agree upon it. So you are looking at, at the, the contract, you're looking at um, uh, construction interpretation principles when you're looking at, um, at the clause. A lot of those construction um, approaches are similar between the two jurisdictions. Um, but then when you start to drill into specific words um, and what they can mean, uh, there are slight differences there. But for, um, you know, at a high level, I, I think, um, generally speaking, they have the same type of effect. Uh, so we're, we're seeing, and as I said before, the various um, arguments around force majeure. Uh, we're also been looking at safe port type arguments. Um, uh, we've, we've had a, you know, some arguments around uh, frustration. Um, if the force majeure clause doesn't bite, is there frustration? That's very unlikely, I think, um, in, in our view. But we, we're seeing those types of arguments um, at least being asked by clients. Uh, so yeah, but on the coming back to attachments and arrests, um, the the US. Well, going back a step, um, once upon a time, Rule B was very prevalent, obviously in. Uh, in its usage in the US. Rule B, which is a procedural rule within the federal um, civil procedure rules, uh, has not changed. The actual rule itself exists and um, there's been no change to the rule. What has changed is um, the court's interpretation of whether an electronic funds transfer, an EFT, um, is to be considered as property at the moment it's passing through and clearing through a New York clearing bank. And uh, for a number of years, it was held that when it passes through New York, um, that EFT was property and so therefore could be attached by parties. Um, and the Jali decision, um, uh, this is probably over 10 years ago now, um, it, uh, it, overturn that um, uh, 
that finding and um, uh, pretty much led by uh, the amicus curie brief of uh, all the banks of New York uh, decided that um, an EFT is no longer property. Um, but that doesn't, that doesn't change the fact that, just excuse me for a second. So um, other property is still very much attachable. So whilst an EFT itself is no longer considered property within, um, within New York as it passes through the clearing bank, other property that you can find is, um, and other property can extend to anything really. So it could be um, cash. If you know that um, a counterparty has a bank account in the US and there's actually money sitting in a bank account, you can attach that. Um, if you have um, cargo, bunkers, a vessel, anything that is owned um, by your counterparty, assuming that the counterparty cannot also be found in that jurisdiction, that's attachable. Trade receivables, if there's an open account between trading partners, and we've used this to good effect, if your counterparty has business with um, other companies in the US, depending on the flow of that trade in which direction and who owes who, sometimes you can go after um, the trade uh, receivable account. And in these times when people are um, seeking to extend credit and there's longer payment terms, often there's an open account there and there's, there's a, a receivable to attach claims, judgments. So we've had cases where, um, actually one of the uh, very uh, large cases that I've had with Ed that we worked on prior to actually setting up the firm uh, when I was in England and he was in New York was a misdelivery claim. And the charterers, Swiss traders, um, didn't uh, honor an LOI. Um, and it was you know, the delivery without bills case, as we were talking about before. And we were really struggling to find any assets. We got an English freezing order, um, enforced that freezing order in Switzerland, and we're, we just were not getting anywhere, honestly. And Ed managed to track down an insurance claim that the charterers were pursuing in the US uh, against a, a completely unrelated um, insurer uh, and it turned out to be a good claim so we attached it as a claim when it was being pursued in court proceedings and attached it then uh, they the other side the charters tried to challenge whether the indemnity claim was ripe for the purposes of rule b that was debatable and in the time that we were waiting for the judge to rule on um, uh, the challenge to the rule be attachment, the underlying claim that we, the property that we had attached, the underlying claim, it turned into a judgment for like $10 million and we'd, we'd attached the whole, whole claim. So the charters then turned around and said, okay, okay, you know, you can have your security for 5 million and, um, uh, and they wanted the, re the rest in cash very urgently. So we ended up getting full security on that one. But there, there as I say, rule B is very much alive if you have some property. And we've developed um, a number of ways of tracking down property um, and thinking through where it might be. Uh, and so, yeah, and so we're seeing a number of clients coming to us and saying, what can we do um, 
we're owed money. It looks like they may be late. Can we use rule B as a way of um, applying some pressure to get payment through? I've always found uh, uh, New York lawyers very clever in finding correct but uh, gaps to fill up the need of business and a lot of cooperation from the United States courts as well to provide these recovery or security methods as well. I think that's fair. Um, if anything, we were too good at it, uh, <laughs> which is what brought on the banks. The banks were being swamped with uh, Rule B garnishy papers and um, the the admin costs alone were, were quite high. So anyway, in, in hindsight. Um, I, I remember reading the order that time, uh, the Jaldi order, and I thought it was a decision of practical convenience, but not not on law. Oh, I entirely agree. I entirely agree. And we have thought long and hard about, you know, whether it's worth trying to challenge that. Um, the, the trick there would be you need to, you need to be ready to take it all the way through um, to the Supreme Court. Um, to get any traction would be difficult um, at even the first level. Uh, and to get to the Supreme Court, you need a circuit split. Uh, so uh, there's not many um, payments, EFTs being cleared in other states than New York. So it's hard to envisage how you can get sufficient circuit split. There, there are some places where it might be possible, but it's, it's quite remote. Um, so we've been looking at other ideas and um, under Rule C, so Rule C is a different procedural rule that's primarily dealing with uh, vessel arrests um, where you are where the actual vessel the rem that you've got a claim against is in the jurisdiction and so you you're arresting that ship because it was involved uh, and that's like any arrest procedure and quite straightforward um, and we all know how that works what we've been looking at though is the definition of a vessel um, and, and what, what can be considered a, a vessel. Uh, and under US law at least, and, and perhaps other places, um, uh, the definition of the vessel itself can extend to freights payable to that vessel. Uh, and under that type of argument, we are, um, we have developed an argument. We haven't yet deployed it successfully. We haven't tried to. We've been finding, waiting for the right case. Um, but in theory, we think that it might be possible under Rule C to um, attach a freight payment um, as it passes through New York. And there's, there's some, and I, I won't go into the, uh, the detail of it, but there is some reason to differentiate Rule B and Rule C um, when looking at the question as to whether um, the freight is actually in New York or not. And that's, as you say, it may have been a decision of convenience in, in a Rule B context. When you actually look very closely at it, on this issue as to is there property at any point in time in New York, it's quite a hard construction to say at no point in time 
is there anything in the hands of the, the New York Bank, one way or the other? Um, and because the Jardy decision would not have direct applicability, it would have persuasive effect, I'm sure, but it wouldn't have direct applicability to Rule C in this question. Um, there may be a way of, of levering open the debate, at least, to have that heard again. Um, and uh, so, so watch this space where if we, if we can find the right case, um, it may well be worth looking at. And the right case would be one where um, you have a claim against a ship, you, you, you um, expect that that ship's going to continue to be paid freight in USD um, and, you, and you have um, some grounds to know where that um, where its bank account might be and what clearing bank it would use the, the, the narrower you could make it the better um, and then you like you used to do with the rule B you would garnish the bank in New York uh, and uh, it may be that the payment requires freight written on it um, which a lot of them do you know on the actual EFT um, wording, the SWIFT, that's, that's an area for debate, but um, a lot of them have the word freight. And if, if you ran a search for freight uh, through a bank system uh, for a particular name, you might get some hits. So that's an idea. I don't know what you think about that one, Ashwin. But... I'm very interested in this. Uh, as I see it, it's for the, for the world, it's easy to recover money from ship owners. It's quite easy to recover money from the actual cargo interests, but it's the most tough to get money out of ship operators. They are asset light, uh, often uh, come in and out and disappear a few years later on. So collecting money from them is difficult. And this may be one of the solutions for that if it works out. I wonder when you say freight, uh, do you, I assume you mean the freight beneficiary, which means the recipient of the payment is the one who's uh, yes. against who you need to have a claim against, not the payer. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, because it's not very difficult to tell. You can tell when somebody is loading cargo and you can, from experience, know that it, freight usually gets paid about five banking days after the bill of lading. So you can kind of earmark the week in which you'd expect the money to flow. Exactly. Set up an alert. Uh, what about, uh, let's say, there was uh, a notorious defendant who I when he took collect money from, and he's got an account with a bank uh, in an in an inconvenient jurisdiction, but that bank also has a branch in, say, the Southern District of New York. Mm. Uh, would we be able to use that to attach his uh, money lying in an account in the other inconvenient jurisdiction? It, it's a very good question. Um, it, you know, typical lawyer's answer. It depends, but um, the <laughs> there's this argument around different banks in the U.S. Um, being separate entities for the purposes of attachment, um, and a lot of banks are structured that way. However, um, and and also internationally, so the the entity that's in the us for a bank and its its counterpart overseas from a corporate sense they're actually different businesses operating under the same same brand name same banner um, but not all banks 
are equal in this respect. And some banks, particularly those in, as you say, quite inconvenient jurisdictions, they have um, more like passporting rights or, or, or correspondent banks, but they're not, they're not fully distinct from the other bank. It's almost like they're, they're holding an account themselves over in the US and they don't have the full setup that creates the distinction in a corporate sense. And we have actually um, uh, looked at this before where, um, and I'd have to chat with Ed about it, whether he's actually pulled the trigger on it, but I know we've, we've actively talked about it, is that there are some banks out there where we think they are exposed in the US to a rule B attachment because they haven't got that, that corporate distinction um, between the money that's being held in US and um, uh, and the banking operations outside of the US. So if it's a mainstream bank like a city or a HSBC, perhaps not. But some of the other, the, the lower tier banks, depending on how it's structured with the US, there can be options there. There can be opportunities. We've got some uh, interesting inquiries uh, on a different context where uh, certain countries have not announced a lockdown. Uh, it's on the first major point, uh, but have declared what they call a holiday for, right. for, for, for that week or for that month, uh, intending to be this. And, and the, the lockdown, it's, it's called a holiday, but it, it's a holiday with restrictions. So you can't travel and you can't do this. Uh, why it becomes relevant is in charter parties, uh, you have a force major clause but you also have a holiday interruption to the running of late time. So you have a clause which typically says, say, Schecks EIU. That's uh, Sundays and holidays excluded even if used. So during the entire running uh, of what cargo discharge should have, for example, taken three days, ends up, for example, taking 30 days, uh, the entire 30 days gets naturally excluded because it's been declared by that state as a holiday, mm -hmm. even if used. So time doesn't count. So then, if again, the whole issue arises as to do you, how do you treat that period? Is it actually a holiday as the charter party would consider it? Or should it be looked at from a post-major perspective? Or is time still supposed to run? Yeah, that's fascinating. I've not seen that one um, myself yet. <laughs> well, it depends on which side of the argument I'm on. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah... Then there must be something around, and I'd expect there's parallels out there as to um, the reality of the order. Just because it might have the label holiday, is that is that in reality what this is, or is it a government intervention um, and more of some type of stay, effectively, or of operations? Um, hmm. I think I'd probably like to be on on that side of the argument that the the nature of this, whilst called a holiday, um, is a, is actually government action um, to to shut down um, uh, businesses. It's it was quite interesting at the outset of um, uh, this uh, this issue in the UK. The government, you could tell, was very careful in the UK government in whether it was saying that the government was ordering a shutdown or not. This is when it was first happening, first playing out. And um, 
I couldn't help but wonder whether that was in part driven um, uh, by uh, um, an analysis of what what is the legal effect of a government making that type of decree um, because it it impacts on all sorts of business interruption policies from an insurance perspective. Um, It also impacts well may impact on businesses ability to claim certain benefits from the government itself uh, depending on what's set out um, uh, and uh, look, I look this is personal speculation um, in, in in this respect but uh, what a government says and the nature of the action it's taken um, it can be looked at differently depending on the context in which it it's impacting and I wonder whether there may be uh, some analogies to draw in in that case if um, with other business contexts like a business interruption policy um, or an insurance policy that deals with that where courts have looked very closely at um, what is what is the actual government decision here um and a government a government could come out and say we recommend this or we recommend that and not put forward an actual enactment or statute and still it has the effect of shutting down business is that sufficient you know We've uh, exactly this issue running in india the director general of shipping has issued uh, ambiguous notifications where he has recommended ship owners not to charge ground rent or demerage. He says, we advise you. And uh, of course, both sides of the trade are interpreting it differently. Mm. Uh, Another problem we've been seeing of late is uh, with the drop in bunker price as well as the drop in commodity price, uh, voyages from, say, Asia to the United States or vice versa, which used to traditionally use the Suez Canal route, are now taking the longer route because it's become cheaper. Uh, charter rates are also low and bunkers are also low. So they're doing the through the Cape. And uh, voyage durations are therefore getting much longer. Uh, as a result of this, we find two kinds of problems, either cargo deterioration claims or claims for drop-in value of the cargo. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's just the market for everything is now dropped. Uh, so we're seeing a lot of inquiries from claims from receivers against uh, the carriers and the bills of lading, uh, pointing out that the voyage was not carried out with a reasonable or quick dispatch because it chose a longer route. But some would argue that going round the Cape has now become the norm to prevent right. the Suez Canal charges. So, mm-hmm. and, and therefore, it still fits in within the definition of route. Yeah, and, and prosecuting the, the voyage um, with due dispatch. Interesting. Yeah, okay. Um, did you have any other any other topics that uh, you wanted to touch on today, Ashwin? I, I found it fascinating to, to hear what you've been up to. Uh, I'm sure, and I hope the, the English arbitration has a clear answer to most of these and it gets flooded and quickly tackles all these questions uh, between the entire trade around the world. Yes, me too, me too very much so. Um, I'm sure we'll we'll get some answers to these questions uh, soon. And in the meantime, it's it's a question of, um, as we said before, leverage and pressure and and trying to help our clients uh, through a very difficult situation. Look, most importantly, um, it's good to see you. Um, I, I'm glad you're in good good health and and um, 
with your you know family and your colleagues and all of that my my best regards um let's 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 hope that uh things start to turn around um uh in the 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 world's response to the pandemic and that these lockdown periods um will be effective uh and um that uh the economy can start to um, to build up again. But uh, for today, Ashwin, thank you very much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure to catch up with you. Um, and I wish you well through this very difficult period. I wish all the families and colleagues at Floyd Zatkovich a quick recovery back to business. And hope things are back to business as usual. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me over. <laughs>